everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with me, Jen Galler. This is the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League's podcast where I discuss environmental issues happening right in our backyards. This episode, I talk with Ralph Hutchison, who is the coordinator of the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance, or ARIPA for short. ARIPA is committed to nonviolence and believes in using every tool in the toolbox. Their main focus is stopping nuclear weapons production at the Y-12 Nuclear Weapons Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and protecting the environment threatened by legacy and ongoing activities at the Oak Ridge Nuclear Reservation. We discuss background on Y-12 and Oak Ridge, the dangers of nuclear weapons productions, the environmental impacts of the nuclear weapon chain, how we are in a new nuclear arms race, getting to the base of why these nuclear weapons are being invested in and made, and then what you can do to get involved. How to contact and connect with Ralph and learn more about ARIPA will be in the show notes below. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Ralph Hutchison, who is the coordinator of the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance. So just getting right into it, what are the problems and impacts with nuclear weapon production? The worst conceivable impact would be the ultimate one if the nuclear weapons were ever used themselves. And and I think it's important to talk about that, especially in a world that is increasingly unstable. But over the years, since 1943, when Oak Ridge was established as part of the Manhattan Project, enormous amounts of contamination have been released into the air and into the soil, eventually making its way into the water in Oak Ridge. So in 1988, the Oak Ridge Reservation, which is 900 square miles, and the environs, which includes the Clinch River, the Watts Bar Reservoir in Tennessee, and even portions of the Tennessee River going downstream, were all put on the Superfund list, the EPA's national priorities list. And usually when that happens, it triggers a massive cleanup effort uh, to try to protect the public and reclaim whatever you can for the environment. But in the case of Oak Ridge, we're still an, an active operating Superfund site. So a lot of the significant cleanup has been hampered by security issues. You know, there are contaminated buildings there that continually leach stuff into the environment, but everybody who approaches the building has to have a high classification clearance. So literally, the cleanup doesn't happen because that just makes it too expensive to do. Yeah, my next point was going to ask you to explain the background on Y-12 and Oak Ridge, and then just what is happening now with nuclear weapons there. Yeah, so I mean, the Oak Ridge Reservation is bigger than nuclear weapons, although most of the work that I do focuses on the Y-12 nuclear weapons complex. But there's also a major facility called the Oak Ridge National Laboratories, which has an operating reactor, the high-flux isotope reactor. And over the course of the last 50 years, it has had more than a dozen operating nuclear reactors there. It was a major training center for everybody east of the Mississippi. If you wanted a degree in physics that included any kind of time on nuclear reactors, you spent a summer in Oak Ridge doing that. But the lab was also the place of basic scientific research on radionuclides, especially in the early days. And much of this happened before we fully understood the nature of radioactive materials and the 
risk that they posed. And so what that meant was a whole lot of stuff was just dumped into open trenches or flushed out into the local waterways. And because the reservation is situated in two different valleys, they of course act as watersheds, perfect pipeline for waste to get into the surface waters. And that has happened. So that, you know, I've had nuclear physicists tell me that if your Geiger counters were sensitive enough, you could track Oak Ridge into the Mississippi Delta. Now, not all of the contamination is radioactive. And in fact, in the case of Y-12, a whole lot of what was released from there was mercury because they went through a process of enriching lithium. And in order to do that, lithium was bathed in mercury. So sometime in the early 1980s, the Department of Energy acknowledged that there was a certain quantity of mercury that was, quote, lost to the environment, which meant they couldn't account for it. Some of it was trapped in the soils under the buildings or even in the flooring of the buildings. A a large amount of it had been released to the watershed and also released as mercury vapor in the air. They had one entire building that used mercury that was ventilated. One wall of it was giant fans to ventilate the building. So eventually we determined that more than 2 million pounds of mercury were, quote, lost to the environment from Y-12. when that mercury goes down into the Clinch River and into the offsite environs, it turns out suddenly that it was, uh, I hesitate to say this, but in the context, it was slightly beneficial to have radioactive materials in there too, because they could use it to track the mercury and where the mercury was going. So there just, there's been a lot of devastating stuff done to the environment. It shows up in the wildlife there, everything from mosquito larvae up to deer have been documented, you know, with contamination, frogs, um, geese, all kinds of uh, wildlife is radioactive if it has been living on the Oak Ridge Reservation. I was looking at your website and you had listed President Trump has asked $663 million for the uranium processing facility at Y-12 in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It's part of the President 2018 budget, which he sent to Congress in May. While social programs like the EPA, science, and the arts and diplomacy get massive cuts, his budget requests increased spending for the uranium processing facility by more than 20%. So uranium processing is essential for the creation of these nuclear weapons. Could you kind of talk about the impacts of that? Yeah, let me say two things about that. One is that was an older budget. Every year we get a rerun of that budget in which the money for bomb production goes up and the money for cleanup goes down. So in February Mm. of this year, the president released his new budget to Congress and it asks for a whopping 25% increase for nuclear weapons production at the same time that everything is being cut. The uranium processing facility in Oak Ridge is scheduled to uh, get $750 million, that's three quarters of a billion dollars this year, continue construction. And cleanup money, money to clean up this legacy contamination we've been talking about, is getting cut 40% in Oak Ridge. Uh, literally $250 million being slashed from the budget for cleanup. So the story that you described from several years ago is the same story, only worse. The money for bombs is going up, up, and the money for cleanup continues to go down, down. 
And those are significant numbers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars and it eventually it adds up. So the uranium processing facility is where most of that nuclear weapons money is going to be spent in Oak Ridge. And it's kind of a, well, as they often do when they're working on building nuclear weapons, they don't like to call it a nuclear weapons plant. When I first started working on this 30 years ago, if you drove past Y-12, the giant billboard sign out in front said Y-12 nuclear weapons plant. Now it says Y-12 national security complex. The uranium processing facility is a bomb plant. That's what it is. Initially, it was proposed in 2005 to be a facility that would handle all of the enriched uranium operations at Y-12. And they do a number of different things. They process some enriched uranium so that it can be turned into fuel for the nuclear Navy to be used in their reactors because they use highly enriched uranium. They do a very small amount, but they do some dismantling of nuclear weapons components and processing the material so that it can be safely stored. They have a huge storage facility there. So there are lots of different things that they do with enriched uranium. And when they propose this new uranium processing facility, we call it the UPF. I call it the UPF bomb plant whenever I say it. When it was first proposed, it was going to consolidate all enriched uranium operations into one facility, be new, modern, it would be able to withstand earthquakes. It would be much less impact on the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But before they got very far down that path, the price tag on this went from $1.5 up to almost $20 billion, and it became clear that they weren't going to be able to get that much funding from Congress. So they reduced the scope of the project so the facility won't be doing as much extraneous work with the enriched uranium, and they broke it up into five buildings, and now the UPF is only a bomb plant. The only part of the uranium operations that, it, that will be happening in that building are in support of nuclear weapons production. And what they do there is they don't do as much what you might think of as processing uranium as they do manufacturing components out of highly enriched uranium. So at the UPF bomb plant, they will be taking highly enriched uranium, depleted uranium, beryllium, lithium, deuteride, about 67 different materials and bringing them together and they produce the secondary for a thermonuclear warhead. Every secondary in the U.S. nuclear stockpile ever, since the first one in 1949, every one has been made at Y-12. It's the only place we have the capability to make these things. And the secondary is the part of a nuclear weapon that makes it a nuclear weapon. The primary, which is the little trigger, is a small atomic bomb like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But the secondary is the thermonuclear part of the bomb that makes it a huge devastating nuclear weapons. We make that part at Y-12. That's what they do. And that's what the UPF bomb plant is all about. That's all it's going to do. Right now, they are remanufacturing the W-76 warhead, turning it into the W-76 modification 2, which is being deployed on Trident submarines. And when they finish that, they want to do a modification to the B-61 bomb that is deployed throughout Europe right now. And on and on. And in this year's budget, for the first time in 30 years, there's money for a new nuclear weapon. And that's going to be called the W-93. And it gets $57 million just for them to do planning for the next nuclear warhead that they want to bring off the assembly line. Wow. What is the point of all of this, all of the money, all of the funding, all of the time and research into these nuclear weapons? Like, 
Is it for proactive measures? Well, the point of it is to keep you and me safe. That is formally, that's the, you know, sort of legitimating authority. I would say a very, very few people believe, if any, believe that this kind of nuclear weapons production is necessary for the safety and security of the United States. Many of the old line, even from the era of Ronald Reagan, who was when we had our last major buildup of nuclear weapons, his secretary of state, George Shultz, his national security advisor, Henry. Kissinger, Admiral William Perry, who was a Secretary of Defense, all of these men have come together to say our nuclear weapons, rather than make us more secure, they make us less secure. They actually undermine our security. And that's the truth. Uh, There may be people who want to believe that nuclear weapons make us more secure, but they make us less secure. The real point of this all is money. The corporations, Bechtel, Lockheed, Honeywell, the corporations that make money off of producing nuclear weapons make billions of dollars a year off of producing nuclear weapons. And not just corporations, but the University of California operates the weapons laboratories at Lawrence Livermore and Los Alamos and Sandia. So even the university, you know, we used to talk about the military industrial complex. I talk about the military industrial academic complex. So that's sort of what we're looking at. The primary rationale is to keep the money flowing. The secondary rationale has to do with the United States being in a position to exert its will backed up by nuclear weapons wherever we choose in the world. But that's not about our defense. That's about our dominance or our hegemony how we want to behave in front of the rest of the world. And that kind of goes into my next question, which is what is going on with nuclear weapons production on a national and even international levels? So what's going on with nuclear weapons right now is we're now in a new nuclear arms race, and we haven't been in one for 30 years. We haven't been in one since Reagan and Gorbachev began to back off and signed a START treaty and and began to reduce the numbers of weapons in our nuclear stockpile. But in the last several years, the United States has pulled out of almost every major arms control treaty that we have, that we had agreed to. And we have one left. It's called the New START Treaty, and it's set to expire in February of next year. And Russia has made several overtures to the United States about renewing the treaty. And so far, our president and its current administration have just ignored those overtures about renewing it. So, and at the same time, we're making this massive new investment in new bomb plants, including the uranium processing facility, to manufacture a whole new generation of nuclear weapons. And we are designing, modifying our current weapons and designing new nuclear weapons. And that has started a new nuclear arms race. So if you went to the Department of Energy or State Department websites now and looked, they would try to justify all of this buildup by saying Russia's doing this and China's doing this, all of which is true. But what they don't tell you is we started it. And right now, the money we're investing, you know, is like 10 times more than Russia and China put together are investing in new nuclear weapons. But it is a new arms race. Vladimir Putin said, well, if you're going to do this, we're going to design nuclear-tipped underwater drones so they won't even have human beings with them. Oh, um, wow. You know, so this sort of ratchets it up to a new level. The United States says, well, we're going to design a uh, multi-use warhead that can be put on a standard cruise missile. So when we fire this missile, you won't know if it's a conventional weapon or a nuclear weapon coming at you, which, of course, increases the danger exponentially because they have to believe it's they have to behave as if they're coming under nuclear attack if their radar picks up 
one of these cruise missiles coming. They can't just sit back and say, well, it's probably conventional, no worries. And all of that pushes us closer to a nuclear exchange. So right now, the world kind of quietly, most people not paying attention. You know, what people pay attention today is the coronavirus. What they were paying attention to six months ago, if at all, in terms of existential threats, was climate change. These are all serious things. But the reality is nuclear weapons can accomplish in, in the space of 24 hours what these other existential threats will take a lot of time to do, and that is make the planet uninhabitable. So this is an arms race that's underway right now. Yeah, and you were talking about some environmental threats of it too, with groundwater contamination and just more impact on the climate change. But what are the major environmental impacts with the whole nuclear fuel chain that gets to these nuclear weapons? Right. So at every stage of the process of developing nuclear weapons, or just developing the nuclear materials even for use in commercial nuclear power. At every stage, there are exposures of people, whether they're the uranium miners, people who do the initial processing of the uranium to separate uranium from the ore, the people who have to live downwind of the piles of tailings that they leave behind, uh, which are radioactive, the people who do the processing of the uranium. At every stage of this process, people are exposed or potentially exposed. And there has always been a commitment on the part of the nuclear industry to pursue more money. There has never been a commitment that matches that to protect the people who are involved in the industry. And so, you know, at the end of either the commercial fuel chain or the nuclear weapons fuel chain, at the end, you end up with a huge nuclear reactor when anything could go wrong there and lead to a catastrophic contamination like we saw at Chernobyl or we saw at Fukushima, or you end up with a nuclear weapon which if it is ever used and functions as it's designed to be functioned, will lead to really a global catastrophe to nuclear winter, which would render pretty much the planet uninhabitable. We wouldn't be able to grow food. We wouldn't have any drinking water safe. And that doesn't require a full-blown nuclear war between Russia and the United States, where we launch all of our 1,500 and they launch all of their 1,500 back at us. But computer models and the scientists who have looked at this said that even a small semi-limited exchange between India and Pakistan, neither one of which have more than 100 nuclear weapons in their arsenal. But even that kind of an exchange could be enough to trigger a nuclear winter. It's not the answer we want to global warming, but it would lower the temperature of the earth by 10 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. It would create a cloud to block the sun. That's how the temperature gets down. And most of where we now grow crops would no longer be able to grow crops. And the contaminated cloud that would travel around the world and drop fallout all over the place would contaminate water, all kinds of water supplies. So that's what we'd be looking at as an end result of this chain. In the meantime, waste is produced, massive amounts of waste. And uh, we don't have a system in this country that makes any rational sense for classifying waste. Waste is classified depending on how it was produced, not how dangerous it is. So some low-level waste sounds kind of innocuous. Some low-level waste is actually more dangerous than some waste that's called high-level waste. And there are a couple of kinds of waste where we do think we have a pathway to get rid of it, but the vast majority of the nuclear waste that's been produced in weapons production or in commercial nuclear power, we don't have a long-term, we don't have a disposal option and we don't have a storage solution. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's just sitting there waiting for bad things to happen. Right. So this whole fuel chain and the production, the processing, just transport everything that goes through it is are really issues of environment, health, safety, social justice, the list goes on and on of all of yeah. the negatives yeah. of it all. 
Yeah, and the positives just aren't there to offset that unless you're making money from it and you consider, you know, if you're able to shut off all the rest of the concerns and just think about how much money you're making, then this is a pretty sweet deal. The government keeps propping up the nuclear industry and keeps the money pouring in. Exactly. So what nonviolent actions do you use as an organization? The Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance was born in 1988 in a demonstration at Oak Ridge. That was the first thing we did. And it was the first time there was ever civil disobedience in Oak Ridge because of the weapons production there. So that's been part of our modus operandi ever since. We say we use every tool in the toolbox, as you mentioned. That means we participate in public meetings. We go to public hearings. We submit public comments. Once a year, we take a delegation to Washington, D.C., and people come from all around the country to meet us there with the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability. And we meet with administration people. We meet with congressional staff. We meet with senators or representatives to share our ideas and views and also to get information from them. We do public education. I do presentations and PowerPoints and that kind of stuff. And sometimes we do demonstrations, marching in the streets in Oak Ridge. And sometimes those include civil disobedience or nonviolent direct action. And oftentimes they don't, but it's every possible tool in the toolbox. One other thing, two years ago, for the first time, we took the Department of Energy to court and we sued them about the UPF bomb plant. And although it took a long time, we won. They've ignored the lawsuit and we've asked the judge for an enforcement order and we're waiting on that response. But we've even used the tool of litigation, which is very expensive and not terribly conducive to grassroots organizing because you know, you have to turn everything over to the lawyers. We have a great legal team and they have worked very closely with us on it. But still, it leaves most people just out watching. You know, we're just observing what happens as it unfolds in the court. Mm -hmm. Whereas most of the other things that we do are geared toward involving people who want to be able to do something about these threats. When I do presentations about nuclear weapons, a lot of times the first reaction people have is, no, I didn't know that was still a threat. I thought that was all taken care of. You know, there's, they're kind of horrified. But the second reaction is, what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. So what can we do about it, I think, is where we live. Yeah, and that was my next question. (laughs) One of the things that we're excited about now is at the end of May, coronavirus notwithstanding, we're planning to have a conference in Maryville, Tennessee called Stop the New Nuclear Arms Race. And it's an international conference. We have presenters coming from Switzerland, from the Netherlands, from Germany, from Australia, as well as from California and other places in New York City. And the purpose of this conference is to learn what tools have been developed in the last five or six years that we can use to move closer to a world free of nuclear weapons. So a lot of the things that ARIPA has done over the years, marching and you know doing vigils and holding signs and public meetings and things like that, they're all still important when those opportunities arise. But there are also some proactive tools that are being developed now to talk about divestment campaigns, and they're being successfully used in Europe to go to corporations and say, uh, why are you investing in nuclear weapons production? And to go to financial institutions and say, why are you underwriting you know, the Bechtel Corporation or Aerojet or these other companies that are producing nuclear weapons? And using those to build grassroots pressure campaigns to get these companies and financial institutions to divest. And we'll have a woman who wrote the book, Don't Bank on the Bomb. Susie Snyder is coming from the Netherlands to lead a workshop on that. There's a major resource been produced in the last year about campus connections, which universities in the United States 
are engaged in or supporting nuclear weapons production activities, and there's a long list of them, including the University of Tennessee here and even Roan State Community College, which trains workers for Y-12. And so this is a tool that's available for students and young people to take a look at, hey, is my school actually building weapons of mass destruction? And is that a cool thing? Am I okay with that? Mm -hmm. uh, so the woman who was a co-author of that report is coming to lead a workshop on that. So we have a variety of things happening, really excited about the leadership. People from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. And we have several of their leaders coming, including their liaison to the United Nations, who will be here to lead workshops too. Great. That sounds like a really good event and with some really important speakers. I'll link the event down in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the last weekend in May, and it's quite possible, I think, that current virus threats will have dissipated somewhat by then. But we're just watching to see how it unfolds. Right now, it's still on, and we're really excited about it. People can register for it. If they go to ARIPA's website, which is just orepa.org, there's a registration form there. Everyone who wants to come needs to register, but you can also you can click on the form and see information about it without going through the whole process if you just want to check it out. Okay, great. Yeah, and then is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to touch on? You know, the one thing I would say is it's really important for everyone to understand that this is a significant threat to our future. But it's also, right now, I think, while the weaponeers are planning to accelerate the nuclear arms race, it also opens a new, very real opportunity for us to counteract that with citizen action that can be effective and can turn this around. In my generation, when I was coming of age, Ronald Reagan was undertaking the biggest arms buildup ever, and there was massive citizen action about that, and it turned out to be the beginning of an age where we saw stockpiles build down and arms control agreements being signed because of how citizens reacted to that. So when Beatrice Finn, the director of ICANN, got the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the things she said in her speech was, people who think a world without nuclear weapons is impossible need to get out of the way of the people who are creating it. And so I want to encourage people to be on the side of we are creating the world without nuclear weapons. That's what our conference is about. That's what our work is about. And I invite your podcast listeners to get on that side. Thank you so much to Ralph for sharing your expertise and knowledge about the dangers of nuclear weapons. In this episode, I quoted the president's 2018 budget for uranium processing facilities. So I'm going to link the 2020 budget that Ralph quoted some numbers from, as well as a link to see what universities near you are investing or engaging in nuclear weapons. I also highly encourage you to check out ARIPA's Stop the New Nuclear Arms Race event with all the international activists and experts presenting. And tune in next Friday for a new episode. Have a good week, everyone.